0: Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at Mazda mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Even if you've never been to Europe, you may feel like you know some of its more famous sites thanks to the work of Rick Steves. Steves, of course, is a mainstay on public television with Rick Steves Europe, TV's most-watched, longest-running travel series. He's also written best-selling guidebooks, hosts a radio show, has developed an app and a website and a travel database, and is the founder of the travel business, Rick Steves Europe. He's also one of the lucky few whose passion is his job. But Rick Steves' passion isn't just traveling and telling you about it. He wants to instill that passion in you. He wants you to turn off the TV, get off the couch, and experience Europe and the world yourself. Rick Steves is traveling to Charlotte this week to share the stories of his travels, He'll be here Thursday night at the Knight Theater's Wells Fargo Auditorium under the auspices of the World Affairs Council of Charlotte. We have information about that on our website, and you can also go to the World Affairs Council's website. And he joins us for the hour. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's good to be with you. You know, I I was thinking about this yesterday, and. when I was younger, I loved to travel. It was, an, it was an adventure, and everything was new. And now it's like riding a—you have to get in an airplane and go to the airport, and that's a pain. And uh, it's like a big bus in the sky now. It's not like it used to be. And there's the packing that you have to figure out and getting to and from hotels and the airport. It's exhausting, but obviously you love it. So where, where does this passion come from in you?
1: That is a very interesting observation because I'm on a, I'm in the middle of a seven-city and seven-day little road tour here, giving talks and so on around the the southeast. And um, it occurs to me it is a lot of work to be to be going to airports every day and checking into hotels and checking out of hotels. Um, but um, I look at it. My beat is Europe. I spend a hundred days in Europe every year, and uh, I really f- try to psychologically make myself at home in Europe. I try to. Minimize the changes. I I do not like a series of one-night stops. I like to stay at two or three nights per stop as I'm running around. But I travel pretty fast, and for me, the exciting thing is to get out of my comfort zone and uh, try something new. It's like it's like wearing different clothes culturally, I guess, and uh, it just helps me reminds me that uh, this world is full of diversity. It's full of uh, wonderful culture. It's full of beautiful people, and to me. It is so rewarding and I've been doing this 100 days a year every year since I was a teenager and that's uh, we just I just had my 50th high school reunion uh, this year that's a long time ago and I'm I'm inter- it's interesting to me I still love it it does not get old part of the reason is I think I still travel like a kid I still picnic I still sit cross-legged on the floor I still carry a um, uh, carry on the airplane size you know backpack that I I, that, that is my home when i'm on the road and i have a youthful kind of um, enthusiasm about making mistakes and of course i get to come home and uh, share the lessons i learned from my mistakes so every time i make a mistake it's 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 productive. When I, when I get ripped off, I celebrate because they don't know who they just ripped off. I'm going to learn that scam <laughs> and better understand the challenges of a traveler and bring home and, and share the lessons. So other people know what's up. And uh, uh, six months later, when they're in Italy or in the Czech Republic or in Greece, they're going to go, I read that in Rick's book. They're not going to get me, you know? So that's wow. fun.
0: I, I want to go back. You said you've been doing this since high school traveling since high school. And I read that uh, your first trip to Europe, you went while you were still in high school, without your parents, that That's makes funny. me curious about your parents. <laughs> ah, Why did they let you do that?
1: All the you know, so many kids travel, and now that I'm a parent, I I was nervous when my kid was going over there on his own, and my and and it's easier now than it was when I was a kid. Um, I went with my i remember i think i was 14 years old and my dad came my dad was a piano tuner and he came home and he said son we're going to europe to see the piano factories and uh, he decided to import fine german pianos to seattle and i thought dad that's a stupid idea the last thing i want to home home. wait i want to stay home for break. Going. So hold hold on. There. I think
0: we're having a, Steve, we're, Rick. We're having a problem with your audio for just a second, uh, and your picture has frozen. So let's get rid of the picture and and, and proceed from there. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you? Can you can you hear me now? Uh, try that. Go ahead. Yes.
1: Yeah. Mike, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. That's great. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, I came home. I, I came home from school, and, and my dad said, "Son, we're going to Europe to see the piano factories." Uh, again, he was a, he was a piano tuner. And I got over there, and it was a wonderland. And I just thought, man, this world's an interesting place. And I thought, a couple years later, I can do this without my parents. And I wanted to go to Europe alone, and I I, uh, talked to my parents and let me go. They said, as long as you get a buddy to go with you. And I went over there, and it was the best trip of my life when I was 18 years old.
0: Uh, Yeah, you you said that that trip that took you through the Alps and Scandinavia and the Iberian Peninsula and even into the then-Soviet bloc, uh, Is still your favorite trip? Why? It was exciting to travel into the communist world when,
1: when, when you were a, a wide-eyed kid and, and, and it was so mysterious, and every border was a was a thrill. Um, I didn't feel like there was any danger. I, I was, we were just, street, you know, kind of street urchins running around there, uh, sleeping wherever we could, and not worth ripping off. And uh, and everything was new. Everything was a lesson, and my world opened up. That's what it's all about my world opened up and from a from a professional point of view, I went several years and I realized I was learning how to travel really, really good I was learning from my mistakes and other Americans were making the same mistakes I made the year before. I'll never forget I was at the bank in Oslo once when I was a kid I changed $100 and $5 $20 travelers checks, I counted my crowns and I goes what's going on I am missing about $15 worth of crowns and they said well here in Norway we charge per check not per transaction dollars, And I thought, and he said, so next time you should come back with a hundred dollar check instead of five twenties. You see what I mean? So the next year I came back with a hundred dollar check and I saved all that money. And the woman in front of me had five dollars travelers checks. And she made the same mistake I made the year before. And it's a silly little example, but I just thought people's vacations are riddled with lessons from experience. Yeah. And if, and if, and if I could just take careful notes and make all the mistakes first, other people could learn from my experience rather than their own and have a better trip. And I would have a good excuse to go back to Europe every year and update my material. And I've been doing that ever since. And now I have 100 colleagues that work with me in Seattle. And I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to amplify my teaching. And I'm doing exactly the same thing now that I was doing when I first started this work 50 years ago.
0: And I was going to say, you've done this now for 50 years. I'm wondering when you got the idea or you thought you could make a living uh, out of this and when that actually began for you.
1: Um, I loved teaching piano I wanted to do that all my life, and then I finally I realized this travel stuff was taken off, so I had to make a choice. I had a piano recital hall and uh, I started using my piano recital hall which my students would give their you know Christmas concert and and so on. I started using it as a travel lecture hall and then uh, I, I self published my first edition of Europe through the back door and I realized I got to do one or the other, and I thought there's more excitement in the travel writing thing so. Uh, you know, but there's a very good window that was back in the 70s, and air, airfare was becoming affordable, uh, you know, there was the, all sorts of uh, ways that people could travel, and Europe was really my beat, and uh, I just decided to do that, and I, and I started making money at it. Uh, at, uh, I, after a while, I realized I just want people to get my information, uh, and I started making money taking groups around. And the, taking the groups around little minibus tours at first and then bigger buses and now I take 30,000 people around Europe every every year on 1200 different tours we have 40 different itineraries and I employ 150 guides in Europe and uh, half of my travelers are people who've traveled with me before we're a very. Um, um, we have our own style We're a little boutique tour company and I just love that. Um, and uh, that helps me make my TV show. It helps me make my radio show. It helps me write my guidebooks, and it it all works together. But our mission is not to make money, but it's to uh, equip and inspire
0: Americans to venture beyond Orlando. I don't know why they have that uh, Epcot Center uh, Circle of Nations or whatever they call it. <laughs> no, yeah, you
1: know, nothing against Orlando, but go there four or five times and then consider Portugal. It won't bite you. You know, there's a lot of Americans <laughs> that just need a dose of curiosity. And uh, they, they would love to go to France if, if only they would ever do it once. But, uh, you, know, you know, people,
0: you know, it strikes me that you're one of the people that helped put PBS on the map. You're there all the time. You're ubiquitous. You're up there with Julia Child. And, and Bob Ross and, and Big Bird, Cookie Monster, uh, LeVar Burton's Reading Rainbow, Fred Rogers, of course. Uh, has that changed the way, because I, I would think because of that, there are very few places that you can go that people don't recognize you. Has that changed how you approach this in any way?
1: You know, I'm very recognizable in certain circles. You know, if I go to a, um, I was just in Naples, Florida, two days ago, hosting a symphony. And everybody knew me there because they're all travelers. If I went to a a NASCAR racetrack, I don't think anybody would know me. You know, there's just different strata in our society. And um, among travelers, I'm really well known, um, you know, uh, among, you, you name it, other slice of society people wouldn't know who I am. When I go to Europe, if I've written about a place, I have an impact on it because I send a lot of people there. So the restaurateurs and the hoteliers know me Um, But if I go to a place I haven't written about people really don't know me, I was once in a little cafe in Romania just relaxing while my crew was filming and I looked at the wallpaper and printed on the wallpaper was a a photograph a a sketch of Ibn Battuta, who is the Marco Polo of the Muslim world. Uh, He's from the Middle Ages, he traveled all over he made Marco Polo look like a homebody and uh, it said on the wallpaper. Ibn Batuta was the Rick Steves of the 12th century, and that is so absurd, uh, you know. But the, the point—it blew me away—the thought that wow, people pay attention to what I do, and now more, more and more, I meet people from India or Malaysia or whatever, and they and they are all excited to see me because they follow me on YouTube. But I consider my world public broadcasting. That's my demographics. That's where I love to teach. I'm so thankful I've got a spot on public television.
0: We've lots to talk about, travel tips for you if you're interested in in, in making a trip to Europe, which you should be by the end of this conversation, and how to control costs and how to pack, etc. It's all upcoming in just a moment or two. He'll be in town, by the way, uh, on Thursday evening at 6 Uh, uh, under the auspices of the World Affairs Council. They bring people in from all over the world all the time. And and this is your opportunity to hear hear him speak in person and even have dinner. And there's more information about that on our website and on the website of the World Affairs Council. He'll be here Thursday at 6 in the Wells Fargo Auditorium, which is downstairs where the Night Theater is. The Night Theater, of course, is part of the Beckler Museum, that whole complex down there in South Tryon Street. We're going to take a break. Coming right back, it's Charlotte Talks. WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. I think we have our technical problems ironed out. Rick Steves is our guest, host of Rick Steves Europe on PBS, and guidebook author and a man of of many travels, shall we say? Uh, you you are there, is that right, Rick?
1: I am here, and I'm sorry about the technical problems, but uh, it's hear you okay. loud and clear.
0: It's okay. So that very first trip to Europe that you took when you were a kid, in, in, in high school, without your parents, you said you did it on $3 a day, and that was in 1973. I remember being in a little Tuscan town in, in Italy in 1982, uh, working for public television, as a matter of fact, doing a documentary, and we could not spend the per diem. And you know, in public television, they don't give you much of a per diem. But we couldn't spend it. We couldn't spend it because it was so everything was so inexpensive. Clearly, you couldn't travel Europe on three dollars a day. Uh, If you had to do it on an extreme budget today, what would it cost you?
1: You know, uh, most of us stay in hotels, and that's the real expensive thing. Um, If you can stay in places that rent by the bed instead of the room, you know, the Y youth hostels, mountain lodges, institutions like that. Um, it can be $30 a night for your accommodations and then the cost of groceries. Um, and um, uh, usually if you stay in a youth hostel, by the way, they took the word youth out of the system now. So if you're alive, you are young enough to youth hostel. Um, uh, but, you, you know, you, you live for the a budget traveler these days, lives for the cost of a, of a bunk bed in the youth hostel and groceries. And you got a kitchen there where you cook with the other travelers. Um, I just hiked around Mount Blanc. And, uh, you know, there's mountain lodges every night and, uh, uh, for a, for a very reasonable price, you get a dinner and um, and, um, and, a bed in the mountain lodge and you have the greatest hiking I've ever had in my life. So there's ways to do that, but most people get a budget hotel and then they rent a car or use a train pass and they travel around and, um, it's affordable. I'm selling more books and more tours now than ever and, and yeah. uh, people who uh, organize their lives. um to afford to travel assuming they're well employed uh, they can they can travel and uh, the trick is you know everybody's asking me for budget budget tips we're all going to sp- spend the same 10 bucks to get into the museum what I can do is help people get double the experience out of that visit by understanding the context of what they're seeing you know that's huge when you go to the aqueduct in southern france the pont du gard you know for a lot of people it's just a photo stop oh that's an ancient roman thing look at that i guess it carried water well, you got to know that it's a, it, what you're looking at is the most scenic bridge in a 30-mile-long aqueduct engineered by Romans 1,800 years ago to bring water into the city of Nîmes using gravity instead of the sweat of peasants. And it's designed to lose one inch every 100 yards for 30 miles. And there's a little square man-made river on the top of that structure. And you look at that. And then you go to the city of Nîmes, and you look at the end of that 30-mile-long structure, and you think of the jubilation on that date, you know, 1,800 years ago when water gushed into the city. And how people in Nîmes thought, well, we lost the battle to Rome, but now we're on the winning team. we got stability, we got roads, and we got running water. Yeah. You know, that's a, there's a one-minute tour guide uh, attempt to give you context so that when you see that pile of old stones, you go, wow.
0: We were talking about uh, people liking to travel in comfort and and staying in nice hotels, etc. And and you talk about getting out of your comfort zone and really enjoying uh, the local life, which we'll talk about that. But one of the things you did early in your career was you went to places where you say you were afraid to drink the water or eat the food because you thought you might get sick. And you talked about sleeping in rooms with dirt floors Ah, you you yeah. say it sounds horrible today, but man, that was good travel. Uh, help me understand well, that. Not,
1: okay, well, that was a long time ago, and I'm not advocating that. But I do, uh, I do miss those days. I got to say. But all of us are older now. We have more money. We don't want to. We, we, we're, we're more risk averse, and so on. We have our comforts. I have certain standards where I'll spend a lot of money to save some time. For me, time is a limited commodity. We Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world we need to use our time smartly as well as our money. I'll spend $100 for an Uber ride to go straight from my hotel in Madrid to stay straight to my hotel with my bag in Toledo rather than take a, a, a metro to the train station, wait for the train, get on the train, go to Toledo, and then hike up the hill to the hotel. I'll go doorstep to doorstep. I'll save an hour of my precious vacation by just using an Uber. That's a splurge to me that's well worth it. When I say get out of your comfort zone, I'm not saying leave the comfort of a a hotel. It's not physical comfort. It's cultural comfort. What I advocate is looking at culture shock, Mike, as as a constructive thing. A lot of people try to avoid culture shock like it's something that you want to not have. Culture shock is the growing pains of a broadening perspective, and it needs to be curated. And as a travel writer and a tour guide and a TV host, I love to get people out of their comfort zone, so that they uh, then better understand that culture, and they come home with the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a broader perspective.
0: And, and and that's one of the why you advocate travel to Europe. And you have said that one of the goals of travel should be should be to get to know people, and to realize that Americans are not the norm. Explain that. Ha.
1: Yeah, well, we, if you lived in the United States and you and you had no passport and you never went anywhere else, your worldview would be shaped by commercial news media, and um, you would very likely be more afraid of the rest of the world than you would be if you traveled. Uh, again, I've spent 100 days a year living out of a carry-on-the-airplane-sized suitcase, hanging out with people who find different truths to be self-evident and God-given, and I love that. Um and it makes me less afraid, and, and it lets me bring home the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a, an understanding that the world is filled with joy and love and beautiful people. Of course, there's complicated issues and bad apples, but the more I travel, the more I am enthusiastic about building bridges and, uh, and getting out and getting to know the world and to recognize that those of us who eat with our, our spoon and fork are not the norm. I was uh, traveling across Asia once when I was a kid, and I was in Afghanistan. Uh, I was at a cafeteria, and the man sat down and joined me at lunch. And he said, are you an American? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm a professor here in Afghanistan, and I want you to know that a third of the planet eats with spoons and forks like you. A third of the planet eats with chopsticks, and a third of the planet eats their food with their fingers like I do, and we're all civilized just the same. I thought, wow, that guy's right. He has a chip on his shoulder about this. You know, every lunch he joins, he sits down and he tries to tell the tourists that people with their fingers are just as civilized. And I thought about that, and I I ate with my fingers for the rest of that trip through India. And uh, it became quite normal, and it was a beautiful thing. It was organic. It the fingers were what God gave me to nourish myself, not sticking a a dirty metal utensil in my mouth with my food. It's a different cultural approach. That's not right or wrong. But it's important that we don't think spoons and forks are the norm. You know, actually, people who sit on a toilet are not the norm. Most people squat without sitting on anything. And we would think that's less civilized, but it's it's really not.
0: Hmm. Uh, Now that we've uh, really bursted people's bubbles here about uh, getting out of their comfort zone and and you encourage them to go beyond Orlando. So let's (laughs) let's let's talk about Ah. something tame. Let's talk about something that a first time traveler, first person, first time to Europe traveler. Should do. How would you suggest they structure that adventure? Do you start with visiting one city, one region, one country? Do you do it on your own? Is it best to book a tour? How would you approach it as a first timer?
1: Well, everybody has the choice to take uh, a tour or do it on their own. And, you know, I'm a tour organizer and I think there's great efficiency and economy in uh, sharing a big vehicle and having a professional put all the ducks in a row, and you pay a little extra, but you accomplish 50% more every day, and somebody else does the driving. That's the rationale for a tour, and I'm very proud of uh, the tour experience that we offer, but I write guidebooks, and guidebooks are for people who want to be their own tour guide, and it's, it's not rocket science, and if you do your studying, and if you're well-prepared, you will do just fine. Um, Most of my travelers and the people I speak to when I go out on my lectures, they're going on their own. They're not taking a tour. These days, you got to be on the ball. I mean, uh, post-COVID, a lot of sites no longer sell tickets at the box office. You have to book online and within a, a timed entry. There's no longer a big mob of people trying to get into Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam. There's no longer a big mob of people congesting the piazza in front of the monastery in Milan, where you've got Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Now, every 15 minutes, 50 people show up with a timed entry, and it's very um, civilized. And that's, they like that, even though it was necessary in COVID. They keep that now. So point is, you've got to have your information and make your reservations in advance. Um, I think it's a good idea to have your itinerary planned smartly every day, knowing where you're going to be sleeping in advance. But I don't worry too much about exactly what I'm going to do during those days, except for having admissions for places that require that well in advance. I think that you can plan a smart itinerary where you're minimizing culture, where you're minimizing the uh, the uh, stress of going to new cultures. You work from mild cultures into more exotic cultures. You respect the weather and the crowds. It's so hot in the summer these days, and it's so crowded in the summer these days. You want to be mindful of that when you plan your trip. And I think the most the thing that distinguishes a trip, Mike, is how many people do you meet. And uh, when I check into a hotel, I, I ask two things: How do I get onto the internet, and where do the people stroll after work before they go home? And I circle that on my map, and that's the passeggiata in Italy or the paseo in Spain. A lot of countries, they call it the Vasca, the Laps. People, the old guys go back and forth with their school buddies that they have for decades, checking in with their neighbors. Uh, the older ladies who don't get out very much anymore are looking out their windows, just just disgusted at how trashy the girls are dressing this year. And and the whole it's the whole scene. It's a multi-generational parade of life. And to be there, whether you're strolling, or whether you're just paying uh, for a cup of coffee at a little cafe and watching the world go by it's a beautiful
0: thing. When you first started doing this, it was a low information culture. We, it was really hard to find information. And for average travelers, they would call a travel agent and the agent would know if you had a good travel agent, they could really make a trip for you because they knew what to do, where to go, how to get it done. Today, uh, everything's out there on the internet. Uh, there's Yelp and, and people write res- reviews of their trips and the places that they've been and they have no references. They have no expertise, necessarily. They're just telling you what they experienced, and people take it as the God's truth. Uh, People rely on TripAdvisor and Trivago to book hotels, etc. Is that the best way to do it? Should you still have a travel agent? Uh, How how should you do
1: this? Yeah, you know, I use a travel agent, Mike, uh, and a lot of people are surprised at that, but I really like to have an expert sort through my uh, connections in Europe, I don't use it. I don't need a travel agent domestically, but in Europe I do, or when I travel internationally. Uh, when I started traveling, there was not enough information. Uh, there's just a couple of books out now. There's a glut of information. There's too much information, and in a lot of ways, um, what I need to do is curate all the information that's out there. Uh, a big challenge is for travelers to know what information is shaping their trip. Um, there's, as you mentioned, there are these crowdsourcing sites and travelers are so enamored with with TripAdvisor. What's number one on TripAdvisor? I I just don't trust that kind of information. I would much rather have, I use a guidebook for somebody who knows that country and and writes about it carefully. Uh, But you do need information. You've got to equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart and you can. What impresses me is how many travelers just stroll around Europe with no information and their trip is a fiasco. Uh, You know, And we are you know, we're, it's, it's a big business, tourism, uh, and everybody wants our money. Uh, it's a huge employer. It's the number one source of foreign revenue in a lot of countries. And as travelers, we need to know, is this a good thing to do on our precious vacation, or is this just a money-making uh, gimmick? When you go to Amsterdam, people walk down the main street, the Damrack, that wonderful boulevard that stretches in front of the train station. And right there, between Hooters and the Hard Rock Cafe, is a friendly tourist information service. It's not. It's a box office masquerading as tourist information, selling you um, commercial money-making gimmicks. There's the torture dungeon. There's the wax museum. There's the the ice bar. There's goofy things that you can do anywhere in the United States. Um, uh, where's Anne Frank? Where's Van Gogh? Where's Where's Rembrandt? Where's the Dutch East India Company? They don't show up. Those are cultural treasures that are government sites that are not you know advertising in the hotel lobbies so as consumers on the road we need to sort through that information and that's why i'm a big fan of, of guidebooks um whether if you know if i'm if i'm wherever i'm traveling i equip myself with a good guidebook it's a 20 dollar tool for a three thousand dollar experience it'll pay for itself on the air on the shuttle and from the airport and a big uh, splurge for me is hiring local guides um you know when you look at my tv show you, you probably notice, I, I, I go, here's my friend and fellow tour guide, Christina, or here's my friend and fellow tour guide, Alessandro. Well, I'm just paying these people to be my friend. <laughs> these, these are these are professional guides. And right. depending on the country and the cost of living in that country, they cost uh, $200 for half a day and $300 for a full day. And that's the best $200 my partner and I can spend, is to have a guide with us for four hours, to walk around and. And show us and tell us and introduce us to the city, and it's. I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. I do a lot of that.
0: You also talk about second cities when people travel, particularly for the first time. They want to see the hot spots: Paris, Rome, London, right. etc. But you say instead of going to Paris, go to Lyon. Instead of going to Edinburgh, go to Glasgow. Instead of uh, going to, yeah, uh, you know, is that for a second time traveler or should that be your first trip? The second cities.
1: Well, I would just remind people, if you go to the famous places during peak season, you're going to experience terrible crowds. It's so crowded. Everybody's going to Barcelona. Everybody's going to Amsterdam. Everybody's going to Venice. These are great places. But think about seeing them smartly. To me, there's two kinds of travelers, those who wait in lines and those who don't wait in lines. If you're waiting in a line, you're messing up. And there's ways to get around those lines. If I'm in Athens and I want to go to the Acropolis, I'm very mindful of the fact that if there are three cruise ships in port today, there's 3,000 tourists on each ship. All of them want to go to see one thing in Athens. That's the Acropolis, the Parthenon. And if you go in the middle of the day, you're going to be competing on that little mountain with 9,000 tourists. It's going to be brutally hot, and it's going to be no fun. If you go at 6 o'clock, when everybody's back on the ship, then... You've got the Acropolis all to yourself as the sun's going down.
0: Rick Steves is our guest. He's the host, obviously, of Rick Steves Europe, which you can see on PBS. He's the author of many, many guidebooks, radio host, columnist, and more. And we're going to come back and talk about packing for these trips, among other things. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins, Rick Steves, our guest host of Rick Steves Europe, he will be in town on Thursday evening at 6 at the Wells Fargo Auditorium. That's downstairs in the Night Theater uh, on behalf of the World Affairs Council. And you can get information about his appearance and go to it if you'd like by going to our website or to the World Affairs Council's website. Uh, we're talking about travel and first-time travel and, and just going to Europe. He encourages this. This is the whole point of his life and his career, encouraging you to travel. How has travel uh, from the U.S. to Europe and within Europe itself changed since you started writing and producing these travel pieces?
1: Oh, my goodness. We're having a a festival next month uh, in in my business and on my website at ricksteves.com, celebrating the 40th anniversary or the 40th edition of my book, Europe Through the Back Door. And that's the book I first wrote, which was based on the lectures I was giving in my talks. Um uh about how to travel on a budget and that was started in 1980 and it has evolved with 100 days of travel every year since then and and just a couple weeks ago the 40th edition came out and it is uh, remarkable how the technology for travel has changed i mean now uh you know all of Europe just about has the same coins jangling in their pockets. It's uh, you don't change money when you cross borders. Uh, now you you change money with an ATM. You don't need to worry about is the bank open? Is it a holiday? Uh, you get the same wonderful bank to bank rate. Um, you know at midnight um, at the airport that you would uh, um, if you would go into a bank um, when you use an ATM smartly. Um, now that uh, Europe is people are. Uh, more educated and more affluent, uh, the language barrier has become very small. I've been saying you can speak, travel in Europe find speaking only English like I do. I don't speak any other languages. Um, speaking English because English is the linguistic common denominator. Uh, these days, anybody who's well-educated, anybody who's young, anybody who's in tourism is very likely to speak English. Um, and um, and Europe is released by amazing transportation network. Uh, the old TGV was a big news when it first started in France. Now this web of bullet trains goes all across Europe uh, from, you know, from, from Sweden to Portugal and you go, people don't fly between cities as much anymore. It's, it's more environmentally correct not to fly and to take the train, but it's also just more convenient. You used to fly from Madrid to Barcelona. Now you go to, from Madrid to Barcelona in two hours by train, and you don't have to go out to the airports. It just makes total sense. So there's all of this new evolution that makes travel easier than ever. You can go from Big Bend to the Eiffel Tower in, in, in two and a half hours, uh, 10 departures a day, 17 minutes under the English Channel <laughs> through the tunnel. I just love that. Uh, every year, I, my guidebooks are out of date because there's new t- tunnels, new super freeways, new bridges that uh, help people get into town earlier than I thought than they thought they would. Also, um, the cities are being uh, very um, green. Uh, you can't. Most of the cities are almost traffic-free in the center now. The downside is people have to walk to their hotels. I've got a photograph that I'm going to show in uh, in Charlotte on Thursday of everybody walking with their bags through the town center because the bus could not get to the hotel anymore because the mayor likes birdsong and pedestrians and bike paths more than traffic congestion. So uh, traffic is kept out of the center. Uh, this is a beautiful thing and it's and for me it's fun to be inspired by how Europe is organizing its its society because we're sister societies in so many ways and we're both dealing with the same challenges and uh, a big topic of my, of my talks when I go around the country and give these talks is how we can learn from other societies grappling with the same challenges that we're grappling with here in the United States.
0: You bring up an interesting point. If a lot of these center cities are traffic free and you have to carry, uh, you have to be let out and walk to your hotel, that is another reason to pack light. You, <laughs> you are an expert traveler, and that, I would imagine, makes you an expert uh, uh, packer. Uh, I am notorious for making lists of things that I want to wear day by day on a trip and packing them and then putting some other extra things in just because I might change my mind <laughs> or, the weather, or the weather might change. So I'm wagering that is not your approach, and I know, in fact, that you never check a bag when you travel. For those watching us on Facebook, he's holding up. His carry-on backpack. That's all you carry. <laughs> that bag.
1: That's I live out of that bag for a hundred days out of the year. It's nine by twenty-two by fourteen
0: inches. All right. Now, how do you, you're you're in Europe a hundred days a year? That backpack is this. It's a backpack. How how do you survive? What's in it? I make my a, TV
1: show with it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I I've never I don't check a bag. It's not. I it's the last time I checked a bag when I was going hiking in the Alps. Had my hiking poles, and you couldn't take those pointy things onto the airplane, but um, what's in it is uh, clothing, toiletries, my computer, and um, not much more. Um, You know, it's it's funny when you think about it, two weeks or two months, doesn't matter. Winter, summer, doesn't really matter. Rich or poor, man or woman, north or south, there's no excuse. Uh, We took 30,000 people on our Rick Steves bus tours this year, all of them. PBS demographics, and um, none were allowed to check any bag to start the trip. It's a good way to shape the clientele, I'll tell you that. But it's no hardship. It's a kind of enlightenment. If I had Sherpas, Mike, I would set them free. I love the fact that I'm mobile. We need to be good walkers and we need to be mobile. There's no hardship involved in that. You've got to wash your clothes more often. That'd be the main thing. You have less variety of clothing. You only have one pair of shoes. Now, for Americans, that's kind of what one pair of shoes. A lot of the world wish they had one pair of shoes. You know, it works. Uh, I take the shoes off at night to breathe, uh, but uh, you know, there's a little adjustment that way. But um, I, uh, I'm very fanatic about that. It's kind of a tough love, and I've been forcing people into pack and life for decades. And uh, if they take one of my tours, I check in with them a week into the tour, and I find out that they're just doing fine. But in fact. They say next time they'll go even less. You'll never meet anybody who wishes they packed heavier.
0: But you just talked about saving time. Time is a, a quantity yeah. that you can't get back, and, and, and it's right. something that you want to use wisely on your trips. So you take yeah. an Uber as opposed to t- going to the train station and getting on a train right. and then go, et yeah. Now you have to do laundry. That takes yeah. time.
1: Mike, you're thinking of excuses. You're just afraid of packing light. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> It's a, it's 10 minutes of exercise at the sink and you do it every four days. It's it's not a big deal. Or if you got the money, you hire the hotel to do it. That's very easy to do, just like here. But um, you know, I, I've got a one I've got 30 hours of lectures on my website and one hour is me packing light. I know I don't have any credibility among women when it comes to packing light. So most of my staff is women. They all pack as light as I do. And uh, Joan on our staff, who's a great tour guide, has a talk for women packing light. Um, All these talks and everything on my website, all my TV shows and so on are free. And, um, you know, we're just passionate about sharing our, our experience. But you don't have to get fanatic about packing light. But you do need to be mobile. And every time I travel... It occurs to me, you know, you do a lot of walking with your bags and um, if you're not comfortable getting around with your bag, your your trip is different. We make our TV show very light. There's just three of us, me, the producer and the cameraman. We can carry our gear uh, all at the same time if we need to, if we're transferring onto a boat or something like that. Uh, we're a nimble TV crew and we make better TV. And when I'm on my own, I'm a nimble traveler. Um, and uh, you don't need to dress up in Europe, you layer your clothing, you're not going um, hiking in the mountains where you got to bring everything with you. If you need something, you buy it. I mean, one thing, you know, I was raised, be prepared, bring an extra in case that one doesn't work or you lose it. No, bring what you need. Uh, if you need more, you can buy it as you go. Uh, and uh, pick up each item and look at it critically do I really need this snorkel and Fin so it'll be nice in Greece, but uh, will, it, will it will will it justify carrying it all around in the whole trip no right cheap as I may be I'd go to I'd go to a pretty serious expense to, to to rent that stuff when I'm there instead of carrying it around
0: talk about safety I mean the United States appears to, to people in Europe I would imagine as one of the most dangerous places on the planet given our frequency yeah. of uh, shootings yeah. etc how right how would you describe Europe to somebody who'd never been there? Is it safe? Is it safer today than it was 20 years ago?
1: I'll tell you, Europeans laugh out loud when they hear that Americans are staying home for safety reasons. Statistically, Europe is far safer than the United States. I mean, there's, I don't know exactly, but there's like 300 killings by gun, guns in in Germany every year. There's there's 30 uh, killings by guns in Norway every year. Uh, And, uh, you know, we've got, We've got a 1,000 killings a month in our, our country or whatever. It's just astronomical. Uh, I mean, if you care about your, your your loved ones, you'll take them to Europe tomorrow, if you believe the statistics. Um, as far as terrorism goes and stuff, you know, there's all sorts of soft targets and, and terrorism happens. But these days, Europe is not going to be terrorized by the terrorists. Uh, Europe has good security. It's got airport-type security outside of every uh, big popular festival. When you go to Oktoberfest, when you go to the Palio... In Siena, when you go to the Running of the Bulls in Pamplona, you enter that that party like going through um, airport security, and um, it's uh, you feel comfortable. I was just in Poland. A lot of Americans are afraid to go to Poland now because of the war in Ukraine. Makes no sense at all. Um, Why would you penalize Poland because it's on the border with uh, Russia? Uh, Are the Russian, you know. World, um, I want to encourage. I want to. I want to connect with the Polish people. I want to help their economy, and I want to learn about Poland. Uh, we have a thriving uh, Poland tour program that we've just kicked off mm. since the war started. Um, so Americans, a lot of times, they overreact to the risk because they let other sources make them afraid. I, I remember a time, Mike, when people said Bon voyage. Do you? Yes. And now, what do they say? Have a safe trip. Have we'll pray for trip. you. Yeah. You know, I don't know where that came from. And uh, when somebody tells me have a safe trip, I'm inclined to say, well, you have a safe stay at home because where I'm traveling statistically, and I know statistics are optional these days in the United States, but statistically where I'm traveling, it's safer than where you're staying. And if we and if we really care about safety, we'd realize the best thing we can do for national security is get out there and get to know the other 96 percent of humanity. you You say wow. that
0: travel makes travel makes the world safer.
1: It really does, and uh, uh, again, uh, you know, if you stay at home and if you've never talked to anybody that 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 is out there, you're very likely to be made more afraid than you need to be. Uh, there are a lot of frightened people, but people who travel are not frightened. Um, uh, I've got, you know, I routinely go to Europe, and you know, there's there's things you can be stressed about. You know, how am I going to find a hotel? How am I going to not get COVID? How am I going to? Um, get into that site uh, before it closes, you know, there's things that are concerns. But my physical safety, it I, I don't take risks. There's no muggings on the street. I mean, it's a very dangerous place if you're an American tourist from a petty purse snatching and pickpocketing point of view. But that's it. We're targeted by thieves because thieves know we've got good stuff in our purses and wallets and we're sloppy. Uh, but apart from that, uh, risk is there's no physical risk. I mean, uh, you're more likely to get run down by a silent uh, tram, you know, or, or open your door and and get whacked by a bicyclist. Yeah. Uh, those are risks. Just because Europe has different etiquette on the road, but uh, nobody's getting knifed over there to, uh, statistically compared to the United
0: States. You mentioned you mentioned COVID, and I know that the pandemic changed almost everything everywhere but the incidence of COVID there is no different than it is here. True, yeah, and it's very interesting for me because I'm taking, this
1: is a complicated thing because what butters my bread, and and employs all my 100 people in Seattle is our tour program. And we took zero tours. I have 100 people in my payroll. We had zero income for two years. That was really tough, but I'm so thankful I was able to keep my staff together because I knew we'd come out of COVID. Two years ago, we resurrected our tour program, and we took essentially 30,000 people to Europe. We had a four percent COVID incidence. Uh, one out of 25 people got COVID while on the tour, and we had to kick them off the bus. We gave them back their money, and we said, "You need to isolate and go on on your own." Uh, that was tough. That was a rocky year. We knew it. Last year, we took 30,000 people on our Rick Steves tours, and two percent had COVID. That was a good trajectory. Half of the COVID rate this year we are um we're, we're we're well this year we're we're almost sold for this sold out for this year now another 30,000 people and we're hoping that covid is nothing. Europe is ignoring covid now. um if you get covid you've just got a cold. and uh we i don't know exactly how that's going to pan out but i'm feeling really confident um about that but i would say that we can minimize our exposure to COVID when I have a pretty good cross section, Mike, of where COVID is for travelers in Europe because we had 40 different itineraries all over Europe. And clearly the highest incidence of COVID for our tour program was in Ireland. Hmm. Why? Pubs. People going to the pubs, no ventilation, lots of music, lots of loudness, people talking right into each other's face. A lot of people maybe not um, getting their vaccinations. And we had far more instance of COVID per person in Ireland than we had in Spain or in Italy or in Greece. You're not going to get COVID licking your gelato on the piazza in Rome.
0: Because you're outdoors. Is there any place on Earth that you haven't traveled to that you'd like to and any place that you would never want to go back to?
1: You know, my favorite country is uh, India. I love South Asia. I love Sri Lanka. I love Nepal. I love Southeast Asia. I love Indonesia. I love Japan. Uh, but uh, ever since I've decided to be Mr. Europe, you know, I've got a responsibility. And if somebody gave, I'd I love to go to the South Pacific. I've never been there. I dream of going there. If somebody gave me an all-expenses luxury-paid trip to the South Pacific for 10 days, my first thought would be, Ten days, geez! I really need to go back to Sicily or Portugal and work on that guidebook. Uh, that's my mission. This is why I'm here. I love it. I've got. Rick, you, you have of to take a vacation once in a while. <laughs> I'm I'm taking a vacation now. Post COVID, I've finally started to take vacations with my girlfriend, and I'm doing it in Europe. And what I'm doing, Mike, is I'm learning that. There are dimensions of travel that i never realized within europe venerable long distance hikes hiked around mount blanc it was a great vacation luxury gourmet barge trips in burgundy i'm in a, it was so great i'm going back with my tv crew this year to film it and bring it home to public
0: television i, I have i have a minute left uh, and, and i'm just this just came into my head i mean how do you take a vacation is it staying home yeah, I I
1: love to. If I want to really relax, I've got a cabin up in the Cascade Mountains,
0: two hours uh, east
1: of Seattle, and that's where I go. And I just kind of enjoy walking in nature and and uh, in, enjoying my family up in the mountains. And uh, but you know, I'm thankful I found my niche. I love what I do, and I feel like it's more important than ever that Americans get out there and get to know the world. And then what I do when I'm in the States, I travel around and share that that message. And again, that's what I'll be doing. I'm so happy to be coming to Charlotte on Thursday, uh, thanks to the World Affairs Council there, and hope to see a lot of people where I can share more of this information.
0: Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have. I have a thousand more questions. You'll have to come back. And and the technical problems that we are experiencing today is because he's uh, he's in a remote location, He's in Atlanta, and we know that they're not as advanced as the rest of the country in Atlanta. Good.
1: Next time we'll have a better connection, Mike. I'd love to talk more. It's been a delight.
0: Rick Steves, thank you very much for the hour.
1: Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org/charlotte-talks.
0: Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.